Hi, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Today we're doing a very important program, I think. It's on heart transplantations, living with heart disease. We're going to talk a little bit about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we have two special guests with us that I'm really glad are here with us. First of all, we have a patient, a person who has lived through this. She's actually had a heart transplant. Her name is Lisa Sahlberg. And with us also is a physician. He is the director of the Cardiac Transplantation Program, Dr. Mark Zucker. Both are joining us from New Jersey. Uh, Welcome to the program. I want to thank you both for your time. I know it's valuable. And we'll start, if I could, with our guest patient. Tell me a little about your story. You had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What happened? How did the symptoms present? And please, Dr. Zucker, if you want to join in and talk uh, from your perspective about things that can occur and how we recognize these signs, go ahead as well. I was actually diagnosed at the age of 12 after a heart murmur was detected in a school screening physical, but it wasn't surprising to us because I had a family history of my grandfather dying suddenly at the age of 43, and my uncle and my sister at that time had already had a diagnosis of HCM, so when the murmur came up, it was pretty obvious what we were dealing with, and that was back in 1979, and there wasn't a whole heck of a lot you could do for HCM at the time. In fact, it was even called idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis, a different name. So years go by, I went on some medication, some beta blockers, and some calcium channel blockers. I did have a stroke secondary to subacute bacterial endocarditis at the age of 21. I got a pacemaker for the first time at 23, defibrillator for the first time at 27. It was replaced four times. And back about 2012 or so, It was determined that my ejection fraction had blunted out from a 65, 70 point down to about 50, and I was not doing very well. And I went on a more standardized treatment of diuretics, spironolactone, changed up the beta blocker a little bit, and eventually my heart basically got stiffer and stiffer and went into severe diastolic dysfunction, so it didn't get enlarged and bubbly and weak. It actually just stopped moving very well, and I had very low output. And I happen to be the founder of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, and I've had the honor and privilege for the past 20 years of working with Dr. Mark Zucker at Newark Death, who always came to our meetings and talked about transplant. And I tried to avoid those talks because this topic is scary. And I called him one day and said, we need to talk. I mean, I knew Lisa professionally probably for the 15 to 20 years before she even wound up as a patient. And somewhere about, what was it, a year and a half or two years ago, she called one day and said, I think we need to meet. But the story she's telling is really quite emblematic of the story that's told by most of these patients. That is, it's an autosomal dominant disease. There's often a family history. Uh, Not always, but most of the time. And most patients are not totally shocked when they're told about this because they've heard about it in sudden death in family members or other relatives. And so Lisa's telling a story that could probably be a textbook story, starting off with pacemakers and then winding up having a stroke and winding up having defibrillators. And eventually, the disease actually does burn out, and that's where the issue of transplantation comes in at that point in time. And, you know, in my line of work, obviously, I get a lot of press releases, a lot of things sent to me day after day with health stories. And what caught my eye was a photograph 
and I'm sure you're both aware of it, but I'm, I'll describe it to our audience. Basically, it's a group of hospital leadership from Beth Israel, and we have our patient here who, who is basically standing, and I'm looking at, what is she holding? Is that like a sandwich? You know, what is that? I said, wait a minute, that, that might be a heart. And sure enough, Lisa Salberg, heart transplant recipient, and it said it was basically at the time National Wear Red Day had special significance for New Jersey heart transplant patient Lisa Salberg, who is now using her old diseased heart to raise awareness about the effects of heart disease. What I find fascinating, and as a person who tries to do health education and also, you know, we do a program for physicians like this, is that both of you, you, Lisa, as a patient and Dr. Zucker as a physician, you have been educating for a long time. I mean, Lisa, you were helping others while before a transplant, hoping you wouldn't have one dealing with your condition and basically organized an entire organization. And Dr. Zucker, I know, you know, well, that you're spending a lot of your time speaking, giving of your time, trying to help others just to talk with them. So both of you are to be applauded. And, and most importantly, talking about something like this, to hear it from a per patient's perspective, in my standpoint, it's, I always find fascinating because you lived it. I mean, you're, you're just a teenager and you have to deal with this. It's been in your family and, you know, to have to deal with a stroke at 21, all of those things. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is really a national organization at this point that truly helps a lot of patients. It's educated physicians, but it's really given the families a place to go. It's provided them with resources. All of the patients that have HCM that I see, I direct right to their website and to the resources that she provides. So, you know, Lisa doesn't tell you much about it. Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. It's a major organization at this point in time. Tell me a little bit. We'll start with you, Dr. Zucker. You talked a little bit about it, but the condition. How does it present in our patients? Are there things we should be looking for, recognizing? Are people calling out saying, I've got something wrong? How do most people present? It's uh, probably far more common than most clinicians actually recognize. The presence of a characteristic murmur is a good clue. But if we all do our job well, and take the family history portion of the history and physical in sufficient detail, usually you will find that there's a story about somebody in the family who had a problem. We now do screening, so the number of patients that are being picked up early continues to increase because once you know the parent has the problem or the grandparent has the problem, you know to look for the ch look at the children and the grandchildren. Echocardiography has made this much, much easier than it had been in the past. Uh, the diagnosis is pretty characteristically made really easily in those characteristic findings. MRI scanning has added to our ability to pick this up. Genetic testing has now joined the pool of options, so we can test our patients with genetic mutations, which might be able to, well, not be able to, which will help us actually identify which one of the children, right, actually has acquired the mutation and which one has not. So from a long-term point of view, in the old days, we would just watch these children and wait to see if something developed. Now we can test them for gene mutation and see whether or not they actually have the mutation. If they do, they get watched more closely. If they don't, they're done. They're not going to develop HCM. So really, a lot of it now is family history and, and kind of being a good detective and, and being able to talk about those things, asking the right questions. Somebody told me as an intern once, a diagnosis never thought of, a diagnosis never made. And so you have to keep these at the forefront of your head when you think about this stuff and you say, why would a young person have a murmur? Why would a young person pass out? Why would the echo parameters be abnormal in an 18-year-old or a 21-year-old? And those are the clues that you need to look for. Yeah, it's one another. The most common misdiagnoses associated with HCM include athletically induced asthma, an innocent heart murmur, 
and panic attacks. So when you look at a large number of patients who go for years without a diagnosis of HCM, but they're at the doctor's office complaining about shortness of breath, they have a little bit of a murmur. They may have had some symptoms that may appear to be a panic attack. They feel their heart racing. These patients should be evaluated more closely and look for the family history. And you're not necessarily looking for sudden death or transplant. You're looking for atrial fibrillation. You're looking for valve disease, potentially, because the family members may have been misdiagnosed for a long period of time as well. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. My guests today are Lisa Salberg. She's a heart transplant recipient. She's also founder of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And I'm also with Dr. Martin Zucker, who is Director of Cardiac Transplantation Program, Transplant Surgeon. Catching it early, why is that important? So the most important thing is to identify who is at risk for sudden cardiac arrest. And about 20% of patients with HCM are at risk for sudden cardiac arrest. And if we don't get in there with an early diagnosis and risk assessment, we won't have the chance to treat them later. And we do know now with careful assessment and treatment, patients with HCM can live a normal life expectancy in most cases. So it's really important to get in there early for the sudden death risk as well as for advanced heart failure evaluation. Dr. Zucker? As well as that, the reason to identify the disease is that probably over the next few years, a number of medications will become available that might be able to alter the natural history of the disease. There's a lot of basic science research going on trying to understand what's the underlying pathophysiology and how we can change the development of the hypertrophy. And there are drugs already being developed by some new startup companies directing uh, their activities and their efforts right to this disease. So recognizing this disease early will probably impact for the life of the people as long as we treat them early and in a timely manner. So clearly, big advantages to finding this out as early as you can. Lisa, are there things you could have done different or things you wish you had done different? I mean, like you said, you got 36 good years out of your heart. I would say the only thing that I probably could have done a little bit differently, which would have made the end of that heart a little more <laughs> simple and less dramatic in my case, I probably should have had a right heart cath a little bit earlier to really assess my pressures. And I was not in the frame of mind that I wanted to do that yet because I wasn't ready to actually go to transplant. But when I finally did my first right heart cath, my cardiac index was a whopping 1.4, which should be low end 2.2. And I had absolutely no options left other than transplant. And thankfully, because I'm lucky to live near a fantastic transplant center, and I'm an A-positive blood type, my wait time is only 71 days once I was listed. So I, I lucked out, but I should have probably made that call to Mark a little bit earlier than I did. She got transplanted on Groundhog Day and got sent home on Valentine's Day. Hey, Valen- <laughs> Groundhog Day. Uh, my wife and I got mad. Our anniversary is on Groundhog Day. <laughs> of course, she says every day is like Groundhog Day now that we're married this long, but that's okay. <laughs> but uh, that's great. So you really, you picked some good holidays to celebrate. I mean, really, I that's, that's fantastic. the cheesiest holidays on the calendar. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> they are cheesy, but that's okay. You know, I wanted to ask it you is. one other question. Uh, I, I remember doing a television um, special. It was actually 11 months where I followed two patients while they were waiting for heart transplants, and it was at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, and we would go in and video and talk to them, this was 20 years ago, every month or so, and and sadly, one person got the heart and one didn't while they were waiting, and one almost got the heart, and it was a storm, and they couldn't get there with the, you know, the transplant team couldn't get there in time because they were were fogged in, and all these different issues. The drama of that and the anxiety, I remember from just being a reporter at that point telling the story, 
When you go through that, how stressful is that when you're waiting for a transplant? You know it's so important. From my perspective, I was anxious most of the time, um, even though I didn't have a lot of blood circulation to look anxious. You know, you don't sleep well. You're constantly worried when's the phone going to ring and is it going to be a problem or am I going to be able to get to the hospital? Is there going to be traffic? I had all kinds of contingency plans that Mark was made to know about. I had my local police squad waiting, my fire department if the weather was inclement. I had all kinds of people on alert. But when the call finally came in at 12.30 in the morning, I was woken up from the comfort of my bed and the weather was perfect and I drove right in. But waiting is apprehensive. You don't know when it's going to happen. And people ask you silly questions when you're waiting for a heart transplant, such as, when is your surgery? I don't know. And have you met your donor? I, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. people ask you strange things and you have to kind of roll with it. Well, also, this is... You a, can't really speak about transplantation, right, without speaking about the donor families and the donors. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, all of this is made possible by people who are doing something for somebody that they don't even know. Right. right? And I think that there's not a transplant recipient in the world who doesn't every day stop and think about the donor and the gift that was given. And I think that's a great way to end this program because I think, you know, that that's the greatest gift. And Lisa, admire you for your courage, most importantly, and beyond that, for all you're doing for others as they deal with their heart issues. You know, you're giving back. You've taken something which certainly you could have felt sorry for yourself, but you're you're helping other people. And Dr. Zucker, thank you. And obviously, thank you for the great work you do every day as a surgeon. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to join us on the program, too. Uh, I'd just like to end by saying thanks to my whole team down there, because without them, I wouldn't be here. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this program, you can obviously catch it on the podcast. You can hear some of it, all of it, whatever you want. You hear as many times as you like on ReachMD.com. Thank you so much for listening.